I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Alvis. Like all things, runes fade, rubbed clean by the friction of time and the fading of memory. Now you may be seated. This week, we watched American Gods, Season 2, Episode 5, The Ways of the Dead. So what did you think? I thought that uh, visually this episode is like back in line with Season 1, and I love everything that is happening in New Orleans. It's so good. Uh, And I'm really happy to see some emotional development between Salim and the Jinn, even though like they're not happy, I'm happy. (laughs) Uh Um. Shadow's story was the weakest for me. He's like very passive this time again. Uh, but even though I thought that, I, I still think it's great. I think there's so much to explore there. I'm excited to talk about it. What about you? I agree. I think it really feels like the show is hitting its stride. Uh, and I think that the increased continuity is starting to give season two a more cohesive feel and making me feel more secure and rewarded as a viewer. Um, all the the stuff with like the spear and the world tree, um, hanging out at the funeral home in Cairo for a while, the the trip down to New Orleans and then being in New Orleans. Um, like at the beginning of season two, it kind of felt like there was just like a bunch of new shit every time. Um, and now we're starting to like follow up on storylines that were planted in previous episodes. Um, and so it just like, it just is kind of gelling in a much better way. Uh, but before we dig in, let's talk about this week's creators. This episode was written by Rodney Barnes, who's also a co-executive producer on the show. He's been a producer and a writer for nearly 20 years on shows like The Boondocks, The Annual BET Awards, and Runaways. The episode was directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. She's a successful TV and film actress, uh, as well as a director, um, and she's directed on Scandal, Blackish, Queen Sugar, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And she's the voice of Eliza Maza from Gargoyles, Disney's Gargoyles. Oh! Which is so awesome. I have never seen that movie. Well, it's a show that um, that Disney produced like uh, an afternoon cartoon show for kids that's basically Neil Gaiman through Disney. What if Shakespeare was a secret history and magic is real and gargoyles are guardians and Eliza Maza is this awesome Latino detective who like solves crimes and does magic and works with cool gargoyles and has a gargoyle boyfriend it's an awesome show i love it wait but female right yeah so latina oh eliza maza latina detective wait at large what (laughs) (laughs) let's recap what happened this week Shadow dreams of a lynching and wakes to find his body is being controlled by the spirit of William James. In New Orleans, Laura finds a drunk Mad Sweeney and the two of them meet the Gede Loa, Baron Samadi and his wife Mama Brigitte. The Jinn and Salim give Mr. Wednesday his spear and the trio meet Alvis, who lacks the skill to restore the runes on the weapon. Back in New Orleans, 
Baron Samadhi gives Laura a potion that can restore her to life if she can find the final ingredient. Then the two have sex. Sweeney and Brigitte have sex at the same time, but then the Gede spirits melt away, leaving Laura and Sweeney joined together. Meanwhile, in Cairo, Mr. Dancy confronts Ibis about the poltergeist of William James, and Shadow is completely possessed by the spirit. He goes to a funeral in Ibis's chapel and delivers the message of the ghost who releases his hold. The morning after, in New Orleans, Laura declares that Sweeney is a whore and a coward, then leaves without him. So there's a lot of really fun stuff going on in this episode, um, but I feel like if it has a message or a theme, it's has to do with the shadow storyline um, and him being possessed by the spirit of the the lynching victim from Cairo. Well, first of all, I'm glad that this episode had a black writer and a black director. Um, just like yeah. right off the bat. If this is the subject matter you're going for, you need to really be handling it with a deft touch and and with a, an insider's perspective. I guess it just made me think of uh, around like 2016, 2017. So I guess it was like right after 12 Years a Slave came out and this idea of like exploitation of black pain for white entertainment. Um, was kind of like making the rounds. And so in particular, there's this article on Jezebel by Kara Brown uh, called I'm So Damn Tired of Slave Movies, um, which we can <laughs> link in the show notes that basically talks about this. Like, why is it that the only time that we're allowed to hear Black people's stories and like see Black people's stories represented on screen, like it has to be in the context of slavery and and like specifically you know, these, like, representations of Black pain and misery. Obviously, the point of these movies, at least at this point in time, is that, you know, like, slavery is bad, and racism is bad, and, like, these poor Black people. But that if, like, that's the only story that you get to see where you're represented on screen, it's just, like, really tiring, and it and it does feel... Um, exploitative in a way where it's like there's so much more to us than just being slaves 150 years ago. So I definitely had that in mind while I was watching this. Like you felt it was too much? Or Or I didn't necessarily think it was too much. I'm curious to hear what Black critics have to say about this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, The message has to be meaningful enough and powerful enough that it's worth the cost of presenting that violence again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. As like a white person watching this show, I want to make sure that I'm giving that black pain like its proper weight and making sure that I'm not just like accepting it at face value because I don't like deeply empathize with it. Right, because I can't in a way. Like I can sympathize with it, but I can't really like identify with it. Ultimately, I think that the episode 
does pay the cost because it's using the past and this legacy of black pain that, you know, we all know is like clearly bad and wrong to say something about the present of race relations Mm -hmm. um, and the present state of black pain in America that on a surface level, I think looks different, right? You know, if you you ask maybe people who are more politically conservative, they would say like, oh, you like, slavery was bad and wrong, but like now everything's better. Like, you know, black people can go to college and eat at restaurants and only the bad ones get picked up by the cops and they should just, you know, it's because they didn't have fathers. Um, (laughs) You know, whatever bullshit (laughs) is happening. Um, And so I think this episode is like, you know, explicitly challenging that perspective and saying like, no, this this like current over policing and violence against black bodies is actually just the continuity of the past and and people Mm. who think that they're separate in kind are wrong they're you know it's basically just like the maximum amount that white supremacy can still get away with Mm -hmm. invoking that past black pain of lynching it works because you know unlike in a movie like 12 years a slave it's not just exploiting the plat the past to tell a story that we all know and kind of like all agree is bad right it's saying like no this is super relevant to what's happening today and injustices that are happening today and you should watch this episode of tv and it should make you mad and it should like make you want to engage politically and socially and like do something you know i was watching this episode for the first time on april 4th which is the anniversary of King's assassination. Mm. Um, I was reading people making statements about how Martin Luther King's legacy has been super sanitized. Again, like there's this perception by a lot of sort of like centrist and center-right, right-wing people that like, oh, you know, if I had been around in the 60s, I totally would have supported Martin Luther King. And, you know, it's like everyone hails him at least publicly facing as a hero and like a pacifist, but actually at the time he was a radical and like over a third of white people surveyed thought that he basically like brought his own assassination upon him. I think that was like a Pew poll at the or time. something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at right. the time. Um, yeah. It was seen as like something that he deserved, just like mm-hmm. something that Jamar, you know, deserved exactly Um, like what did he think was going to happen he knew like what else could have possibly happened yeah and so i thought it was i don't know watching watching the episode um and having them talk about you know funerals as not just a place to grieve but also as like an opportunity to organize all of that was just like really resonating because of the date that i happened to be watching it i think one layer underneath that there's kind of like a second and separate theme, which is not just the comparing between the lynching and then like the modern day version of that through the police. Um, But the idea that William James 
is like haunting Shadow and trying to get him to kill himself out of some sort of like racial self-loathing or wanting to give him a sweet release from hopelessness. And I don't know. I've So that part of it like didn't quite work as well for me. And mm-hmm. I'm curious if you had any thoughts about it. The show kind of like tries to explain William James's motivations for haunting Shadow, but like it didn't truly like click for me on an intuitive level, I guess. Yeah, because I like what you're saying and and we talked about in a previous episode how I kind of interpreted Laura's presence in Shadow's life as being like a reminder of his mother's death and how the like that's how the dead operate in stories they are like a reminder of the past and how it becomes like inescapable as they you know are are somehow back alive and it's that's what it is for William James right like you said like history is alive right now and repeating itself over and over and it's inescapable and we have to acknowledge that Uh, like I think that's the strongest thing that the episode is saying, but yeah, this secondary thing of like it being personal to shadow. And I like the idea that shadow needs to confront his racial identity in that sense. We don't really know that much about shadows relationship to the black community and his racial identity. And so like in the book, he's supposed to be more like racially ambiguous. Um, in the show, I think he very clearly reads as African-American. In season one, we basically don't see him ever interacting with other Black people. It's just, like, him and Laura and then Robbie and Audrey. Right. Uh, and then in season two, we did get to see a little bit of his relationship with his mom, who seems like she was very racially and politically conscious and he had a good relationship with her. But he seemed like very socially isolated beyond that. And I think that he is shut off to himself internally. Mm-hmm. And that also shuts him off to his blackness in a way. Like Shadow's identity is a tool to him as a con man. But as a tool, it kind of renders it null, which which renders all the pain associated with his identity null which is kind of the point of this story you know in terms of like shadow as the main character like the story of american gods is kind of an awakening of who shadow is um and how that relates to like the american dream and so this is one important aspect since the show like you said has cast him as textually black he needs to acknowledge his blackness and to confront what that means to other people, but also what it means to him. Like, is he denying or, or not thinking about his blackness because he has a sense of self-loathing like William James does? Or does, or is Ooh. it just that he hasn't thought of it? Or is it, yeah. you know? See, I feel like if that had been a little bit more clear in the text that, like, he had been like separated from a black identity and then his experience being haunted by William James had like changed that for him in a little bit more clear of a way. I think I would have appreciated it more. 
it's really fuzzy. Um, this moment when he wakes up and goes into the bathroom and puts the razor to his neck um, happens in the book. Uh, and it's one of the parts of the book. I've read this book many times, like dozens of times. Almost every time that I get to that part in the book, I start crying. Like Shadow has nothing when he gets to Cairo. You know, it's like he escapes from the train at, with after Laura he gets a car, he gets down to Cairo, but he has no clothes, he has no possessions. And so the clothes that he puts on, just like in this episode, are from a dead person. And the razor that he's using is this old style razor. Um, and when he goes to, he looks at himself in the mirror and he goes to shave. What he thinks is, I could just slice from ear to ear right now and if there's any two guys in the world who would just clean up the mess and go about their day it's the guys downstairs oh my god and i could just get it over with yeah i mean it's really dark oh and Um, i feel like that's the kind of interiority that like comes across much better in a novel than in a tv show yeah. Well, in this, he doesn't have any agency, right? He's not yeah. putting the, it's not, it's not despair that's putting the knife to his neck. It's a poltergeist. Right. So it's, so it's like, um, the spirit is inhabiting his psyche rather than inhabiting his body. Yeah. Which is like a subtle, but kind of important difference. Like I saw this as kind of shadow, literally experiencing slavery the control of his body is taken from him. The words that he says are not his own words. The, the movements of his body are not his. Um, That's the way that I read Ricky Whittle's performance when he goes to the funeral Mm -hmm. that he's totally taken over. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. And actually I was curious, I was trying to figure out if like Ricky Whittle was doing something different with his voice or if they actually had the other actor ADR over it. Oh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I thought it was him. Okay. But I guess that's possible. It sounded very different than his normal delivery. I, I couldn't tell. In the Middle Ages, they worshipped death. They knew its power over life was suffocating. I learned that from my wife. Now I look into the soul of death and I welcome it. Momento mori. Well, he's at least very good with accents. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. The other, like, key point that I thought was important for the storyline was how the, like, dialogue between Ruby and the preacher where he's acknowledging the fact that to some extent the the role of religion is kind of to like give people strength in the face of suffering but that telling people to just endure pain and that they're strong enough to get through it can be an excuse to like not do something more active to try and stop that pain yeah. Right? That, like, and Ruby saying, like, no, like, Cairo fucking sucks. I'm going to get the hell out of here. Um, and he's like, oh, you don't have to leave. Like, the Lord will 
you know, like, heal you and blah, blah, blah. And, like, the Lord will give you strength to persevere. And then at the end, he says, you know, like, we learn to look away, but I can't any longer. A world in which little or nothing makes sense anymore. And then, like, gives her permission to leave. And that's kind of, like, the penultimate moment. Um, There's almost, like, two mini resolutions. And (laughs) And I feel like they almost kind of, like, rob each other of their power mm-hmm. so like Lonnie always says that um if you want to know what a story means look at how it ends right mm-hmm. and so that's kind of like one ending of the story is the preacher being like okay you're right the sort of like palliative pastoral care that's been keeping us alive in the frying pan is like not good enough like leave and see if you can find something better and if you do like call me up and i'm gonna like get there as fast as i can um (laughs) and so that's one ending and i guess so i'm curious if that story arc worked for you and like what the metaphor is to real life right because like i mean black people can't really leave america like you can (laughs) you can go from a town like cairo to somewhere else but like White supremacy is everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. So the second ending, right, is uh, the one where Shadow is possessed, says his thing, and then Ibis follows up at the end with, like... Maybe Froggy keeps his memory alive to share the pain, the self-hatred, and absence of simple solutions for our people. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's, like, the real ending ending that is, like, trying to give meaning to the story arc. I was trying to figure out like how the Ruby preacher thing fits in with that. And maybe that is like an example of the absence of simple solutions, right? Like she can leave and try and go somewhere better, but it might not actually be better. I mean, it probably isn't actually going to be better, but maybe it's like worth looking anyway. I don't know. I mean, that, that reminded me of, we've talked about like I lived in Louisiana um, for a long time and a big part of the reason why I moved away was Hurricane Katrina happened. And a lot of folks who were in New Orleans, uh, in the surrounding areas, uh, black folks especially, had no choice uh, but to leave after Katrina happened. And like, I, I was thinking about a lot of people who went to Houston. Years later, like, the people were getting word, you know, New Orleans is back on its feet. It's ready for people to come back. And the people in Houston were were like, you know what? Life is better here than it ever was there. <laughs> really? It really sucked in New Orleans. And we didn't understand how bad we had it until we got out. Interesting. Um, you know, sometimes a, a community can just be so used to the violence and oppression and um, the self-hatred, like this story says, that you you become blind to it. And only when you leave and look back, you go, oh, my God, how did I ever live like that? It also made me think of um, like Ruby is talking with the preacher and saying, like, this isn't good enough. And it it made me think of like the kind of platitudes that we get uh, when tragedy strikes in this country about like, oh, our, our uh, thoughts and prayers are with you. Um and it's like, you know, that's not good enough yeah. from you people in power um, or you people with resources. Uh, we need action and, you know, thoughts and prayers versus like 
the black liberation theology that the preacher brings up, but doesn't seem to exhibit in any meaningful way. You know, like Malcolm X famously said that Christianity is the white man's religion because of the way that Christianity was used to colonize uh, black people. Like you literally had no choice when you were a slave, but to be a Christian Mm -hmm. leaders like King and other people at that time uh, reinterpreted the Bible as like a politically radical text that said, actually, no, it's not about being meek and mild and accepting whatever we get. It's about that we have an inherent dignity given to us by our creator. Uh, And this, this story in the Bible is a story of liberation, but this preacher has kind of lost his way as far as that goes. And I think Ruby is kind of, um, rebuking him and challenging him and like also speaking over his head directly to the audience, you know? Yeah. As far as like what Ibis um, says to shadow about all of this at the end there, I think that shadow is still looking for the coin trick. He still wants like, what's the moral of the story? Kind of And Ibis is like, well, I, I mean, I want meaning too. I want this to mean something. But I think it's interesting that Shadow, like, I think uh, Nancy, like, literally says something like that to him. He's like, everything has an explanation, right, Shadow? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's not about, like, what this means. It's like, you need to look inside yourself um, and see what, you know, like, what did you experience and what does that mean about who you are? Like... Like Shadow's whole thing is that he's doing time. He's like doing his time, right? Like his life is literally like this death sentence. He's not living, he's surviving. And it's like, yeah, we all know that we're going to die, but that's not the same as like wanting to die and like wanting to get out of this life. And Shadow has now had some experience uh, whether he wanted to or not of feeling the kind of despair that um, makes you want to annihilate yourself. And, and like that's needs to be a part of his journey. He needs to kind of synthesize that, but he fails to at the end. Like the gods are snickering at him and he says, fuck you and like walks away. Yeah. I was kind of curious also what your take was on that like bickering between the gods. Um, mm-hmm. Because like Anansi seems like he's mad at Ibis and Jaquel for profiting from dead black bodies like I kind of didn't really buy that because I feel like Ibis and Jaquel's perspective is like much broader than that right it's like everyone dies eventually and then also like in previous episodes Nancy has seemed like very disdainful of Wednesday there was the whole fried chicken incident um (laughs) But, like, they just seemed very chummy here. And Nancy seemed like uh, here, I mean, he's always been, like, kind of purposely trying to needle and annoy Shadow. And it seems like he has disdain for him based on the fact that he's Wednesday's puppet. But if, like, Mm. why would he, like, take all of that out on Shadow for being the puppet, but not on Wednesday for being the white man puppeteer. I don't know. It's just like (laughs) that whole saying, like, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like Wednesday is the game, (laughs) you know? He's the game, yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. That's what how I felt too. It's like out of step with itself. And so all I can do is just take it as the show is telling us they're friends. I guess. Yeah. And there's nothing that like, I just have to take that as what it is. I mean, it could be that Nancy just plays along with him to get what he needs from the situation. And then when his back is turned, he's like fucking Wednesday motherfucker. Like he's like, you know, and then when he, when they're face to face again, he's like, my friend, my good friend, you know, this whole thing though, that you asked about with, um, with Ibis and, uh, and Nancy, um, he's clearly referencing to me this thing called the book of Toth that is like a magical book, like a book of sorcery in, I don't want to say in like the real world, like, but it, you know, like in mythology, it's not in American gods, the novel or, or it is, but the book of Toth in the novel is the book of coming to America stories, which I actually love that Gaiman does that. But what Nancy is saying is, oh, you are like this wizard, and clearly you're using magic on this spirit to create a terrible situation in this town to feed yourself as a god. You're farming these people, oh, basically. Oh, that... Ibis is the one who's sustaining the ghost of William James. It's not just like a typical poltergeist. I see. Okay. No, I totally missed the specificity of that accusation and thought it was like more general than that. So in the book, like none of this happens in the book. Um, This whole William James thing, which is fine. Like I really like this story and I, I think it's great and I'm glad that they did it. But for context, in the book, Bast no longer has the ability to change into a human being at will. She's stuck as a cat. Mm -hmm. She can become human in Shadow's dreams, but not like in reality. And then Anubis and Ibis are also losing it. They are becoming weaker and weaker. And they talk about like, we're going to have to retire soon, maybe in a year or two. I see. Um, Is that why Anubis went away and was running around as a dog? Yeah, exactly. So I think like Nancy is pointing out here, like, I know that you're starving and you need to eat, but what you're doing is fucked up. Like, stop it. I see. Okay. That makes more sense. And and Ibis basically says like, yeah, whatever, dude, what you're saying is not happening. (laughs) This This has nothing to do with me. I don't think that Ibis would do that. That seems out of character for him. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, So shall we talk about New Orleans, but in a less depressing way? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, New Orleans was fun, right? This was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I loved all this stuff. And now Um, you can have a monologue. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to talk for a while. Um, Hopefully it's not boring. So on on our shows, um, I talk about religion all the time, but I don't really talk about my own ideas that I have about them. The reason is because I don't have a college degree in anything, like not even a bachelor's degree. I read a lot of books, but I'm not an expert in anything. And anything that I say is just my opinion. I try not to present myself as a teacher, even, you know, like, and say, like, this is a great idea. You should think this way, too. 
Um, so like everything that I'm going to say, like take with a grain of salt when it comes to voodoo. What I would say about voodoo as another caveat before starting off is uh, if someone is white and wants to talk about voodoo, don't listen to that person very much. <laughs> nice caveat. <laughs> <laughs> and if that person is not a voodoo practitioner, which I am also not, you also should not listen to them very much about what they have to say about voodoo because voodoo is a secret religion. It has to be taught to you by a spiritual practitioner and expert for you to know what's going on. Like that's part of the whole point of it was to hide information from slave owners. One of my main ways of thinking about religion is the idea of spiritual reality. So what, what do I mean when I say spiritual reality? There is objective reality, which is, you know, the stuff that happens in the world to us, things that are happening that we have no control over. And then there is subjective reality. That's the reality inside of our head, the way that um, we sense things and experience them. And that is not necessarily the same thing as objective reality. For example, I have a reading disability. And uh, just today, as we record this podcast, uh, I was at work. I saw a sign that said, no one enter. There was like each word was stacked on top of the other one. So first no, then one, and then enter. That's objectively what it said. When I read it, though, subjectively, it said none on return. That's what I read oh, that's when I so saw the sign. Now, I knew that that doesn't make any sense. And I knew I have a reading disability. And so I forced myself to examine that sign closely until I read it correctly. Spiritual reality is, for me, the synthesis of objective reality and subjective reality. I knew that I wasn't reading the sign correctly. My entire experience of that was that I experienced the objective reality of it after examining it, after first going through the subjective reality. And then my spiritual reality was to feel shame and confusion and frustration about that entire experience. This might be a long-winded way of just saying, well, that's just how reality works, Alan. But for me, I say spiritual because it is on a completely different level than merely what is happening or what is just happening in your head. It is the experience of both of those things interacting with each other. Religion has an additional relationship with the spiritual reality that you have that I will come back to. First, let's talk about the objective reality of people who created voodoo. This was created by slaves who were brought over from Africa. The people who were brought to Haiti, they were brought over in amazing numbers that are hard to comprehend because they died so quickly that they could not replenish their numbers 
um, by having children. And you're talking about millions of people. The people who were there had no agency over their own body. They had no agency over what they believed. They were forced to become Catholic. There was lots of disease. There was lots of um, overcrowding. The places to live were terrible. Subjectively, what is that like? This is impossible for me to know. Like I said, I'm white. I live in America. I'm basically rich compared to people like that. Um, We know that they had no tie to their own people or history except what they could remember. So like if you were brought over as a child, you probably wouldn't know even who your people group was um, in any meaningful way. You would know a little bit about your family, but you wouldn't understand like the history of your people or have an identity that is tied to a larger group. Right. And that was like one of the the things that made slavery even more disorienting, right, was that you had people from completely different language groups and social, like, cultural groups coming in and getting mixed together as if they were all the same. But, like, they were from completely different places with different cultural practices and, and, like, couldn't communicate with each other. And that was on purpose also. yeah. Yeah, to break up people who could speak to each other in languages that the white people couldn't understand. Um, So they couldn't, like, plot to overthrow them. Exactly. Also, in addition to that, you had spiritual leaders from Africa who might lead an entire community of a couple hundred people or something. Those people are not there to teach you about, like, you might have a general sense of, like, okay, yeah, there's, like, a, a god of the air, I think it's like a snake or something. I I don't like, you know, regular people are not religious experts who know all of the stories. You rely on a different group of people to know your history and then another group of people to know your religious um, stories, but also to give you advice, right? Like based on all of that and guidance. It's hopeless. There's no happiness. There's no joy. What happens when you synthesize those things? When you make a spiritual reality out of being a slave and having no real identity based on your history. You have no ownership over who you are. Everything about your life is desolate. Your body is not yours. So add to this a religious reality. Like I said before. What happens in voodoo? In Way in the background, there's a god called the Bandai, who is basically like the Christian god. But he's very remote. He's unreachable. Right, because if he was, he wouldn't allow it to happen. Exactly. But there are these spirits that can communicate with the Bandai for us. Voodoo is what's called, in technical uh, religious studies terms, a syncretic religion. Um, it's the same word as synchronize. Voodoo synchronizes with Catholicism, especially with the saints from Catholicism. So it takes African spirits and synchronizes them with various Catholic saints who are roughly equivalent in what they represent. So you would have like St. Peter, who greets the dead in uh, Christianity, lines up 
with the guy in this episode, Beryl and Samity, who greets the dead when they cross over. Why does voodoo do that? Because it means that Catholicism is secretly an African religion. It reclaims the spiritual heritage of the people who have no choice but to be Catholic. They say, oh, yes, we're Catholic, but secretly we're actually our own religion that you don't understand. When the practitioners of voodoo call out to these spirits who are called Loa, which is kind of a mutation of the word law, um, the laws of God, the Loa enters your body and takes you over, much like what happens to Shadow in this episode, except that Shadow didn't want it to happen, but the practitioners of voodoo are inviting this to happen. And so their body is being taken over in exactly the same way that in their lives their body has been taken over and no longer belongs to them, except that this time they have given their permission for it to happen. And this is a way of reclaiming the agency of your body while still going through the same traumatic experience of having it taken over and kind of releasing that trauma emotionally and spiritually. The religion exists as kind of a story to recontextualize that spiritual reality of having no agency, no hope. And where these people saw so much death happen, where people were dying faster than they could be replaced with children, one of the most important parts of voodoo is death. And the Gede, who um, Baron Samadhi is the leader of, are like the lords of death and of sex. The reason those two things would be married in these conditions, you would know that having sex means that somebody is going to die. The mortality of children in Haiti was somewhere around 50%. If you had a child, it was a coin flip of how long that child was going to live. Also, the mother had a really good chance of dying because of complications in the pregnancy. So death and sex are literally the same thing. Voodoo is a way of reclaiming the experience of giving the agency of your body away and of acknowledging that death is more powerful than life, but death is also this celebration of life. Because the Gede are the most hardcore partiers <laughs> that there are in, in the voodoo pantheon. It's a lot like what we see in the episode. They fit in really nicely to New Orleans. And I'm saying all this stuff about Haiti because that's where it started, but it also went into uh, Louisiana. I see. So it like it started in Haiti and then as they were like trading slaves among places, slaves from the Caribbean ended up in Louisiana, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And then they teach other people about voodoo practices, it's not freedom, but it's the closest, It's it, you know, like your mind is, is the last place that you have that's yours. Yeah. And this is another way to resist. So, you know, that's a lot of information. Um, and like I said, uh, it's totally just my 
way that I think about religion. That's super fascinating. Um, Because I guess coming into this, I knew that voodoo was like a syncretic mix of Christianity and um, like African animism. But I wasn't really thinking about the like extreme role that death played in their daily life. It totally makes sense that your religion would have death in this like very central role and also in a way that's like kind of trying to make it less scary. I mean, I guess that's what Christianity is trying to do, right? But it's just by promising uh, you get to hang out on God's lap in heaven or whatever. Also in voodoo, it's like very important that like the people who pass on you like are a part of your daily life. Like you consult them about Mm -hmm. everything. Um, And so the dead are never really dead. Whereas in Christianity, it's like, oh, well, you'll be reunited with them later, but you're not like interacting with them as much in the real time. Um, Mm -hmm. So we did do a little bit of reading specifically about Maman Brigitte. I was curious why they made Brigitte white uh, when I first watched the episode uh, before I went to Wikipedia. And apparently Brigitte is the only white Loa. um, That's right. Which is pretty cool. And it kind of makes sense with the name Brigitte. She's like, she like specifically comes from Ireland, which I thought was interesting considering that Ireland is also an island that was brutally colonized. Mm. And so even though Irish people have like a very different place in the world today, and obviously like descendants of Irish people in America have a very different place than than descendants of Haitians in America do, like it, it does kind of make sense that Haitians would feel some kind of like solidarity, especially like back in the 1800s when shit was still real bad over in Ireland. <laughs> right. In Ireland, Brigid, um, who she comes from, was like a goddess of like poetry and um and basically like stories. Um they picked someone who is like a storyteller because that's important. It's a party and uh we're gonna have fun. Now you mentioned that um she's Irish. Um she's a white woman, an I- Irish white woman with a black husband. Laura is a white woman with a black husband. She's with an Irishman who she's like, clearly has this attachment to. There's kind of this energy between her and Sweeney. Mm -hmm. Um, Which also, again, like this wasn't in the book because Laura and Sweeney don't hang out in the book, but I loved that little story building where the horribleness of his luck is directly related to his physical distance from the coin so mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as he is standing next to Laura, he's actually going to be doing okay. But if, you know, if they're on like opposite sides of the continent, he's totally fucked. <laughs> he looks real bad when she finds him. Yeah. And then he, and then he gets better pretty quickly once, uh, mm-hmm. once they meet up again. So I really loved that just like little bit of world building. It's great. Yeah, but back to the sex, which this week was weird enough for me. Yeah, that was that was the first thing I texted you after watching the episode was, was the sex weird enough for you this Absolutely. week? Absolutely. 
Baron Samadhi is part of like what he's known for is he's extremely sexual. Mustafa Shakir's performance is so good because I feel like you could play this character in a very like different way where you're chewing scenery and you're very, like very big and loud and it would be completely consistent with who this person is like in the mythology. But I don't know, like he was sexy and like competent and powerful and at least for me like what did you think of it oh yeah no i i definitely thought so too he was projecting a lot of power and energy but in like kind of a quiet way where he's like i don't need to impress you exactly it's just like gravity yeah and then you know like the whole thing they they get wrapped up in smoke and you're not sure who's with who anymore and all of a sudden sweeney and laura are together and like all the Mad Wife fans are like screaming and like I know they finally got what they wanted, only to have it all ripped away. I like it from a storytelling perspective because it's kind of giving the fans what they want without actually giving them what they want. They do obviously have this like energy and connection between them, but it wasn't a choice that either of them made to consummate it, and it has kind of like changed everything now and made it really awkward (laughs) yeah as far as that goes like i kind of like in light of the whole voodoo thing that the the voodoo spirits the voodoo loa fuck over the white people like i kind (laughs) of love that i kind of love it if i really have to like put my read on the sweeney dead wife relationship out there i think that sweeney's into laura Laura feels a connection, but she can't because she's, now that she's dead, completely devoted to Shadow. That's why the relationship would never work, because she'll never be into it, at least until her mystical connection to Shadow is broken. I don't want what Wednesday is telling her to be true. I don't want it to just be that she's selfishly following Shadow and telling herself that she's in love. I want her to actually feel love, but then she's confused because she has these other feelings about Sweeney. Like, that's okay. I want, but I want there to be real love for Shadow. Otherwise, what happened in season one doesn't make very much sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I haven't really felt a strong connection between Laura and Shadow since, like, I don't know. In a long time. I agree. Like, and in this season, she shows up and she's like, Shadow, you've got to believe in our marriage. And it's like, bitch, what? Like, you, you literally, like, you cheated on him and died from it. And then you showed up and he said, nah, I ain't your puppy anymore. And then she's like, you got to believe in our marriage. It's like, are you crazy? Like, yeah. No, she needs to work her shit out. Um, Yeah. I kind of... I was enjoying the status quo of um, her and Sweeney pining for each other, but I didn't actually want them to get together because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I don't know. But but I think all of this is really good. It's like so well yeah. done. It's great. It's, yeah. It's very fun. Like the costuming was great. The casting was great. Oh, like speaking of the costuming, uh, when I was watching it with my wife, Beryl Samadhi shows up and she was like, oh, that looks like the Shadow Man uh, from The Princess and the Frog. 
which is a Disney movie that's set in Louisiana, and the bad guy is basically this same dude. Yeah, like you said, this doesn't happen in the book. However, there is a coming to America story that is about the origin of voodoo in America. And it tells the story of twins, and one of them goes to Haiti as a slave, and the other one goes to Louisiana as a slave. And you can kind of see how voodoo is different and the same in those two places because of it follows both of those threads. It's really interesting. It's it's really good. That's really cool. Yeah, I hope they do adapt that at some point. Okay, so let's talk Salim and the Jinn, because I feel like the thing that we've kind of been complaining about, um, that Salim has just been following the Jinn around, but they like haven't really been interacting in a super meaningful way, finally got solved in this episode. Yeah. By solved, I mean narratively it got solved. The problem right. did not get solved. <laughs> the problem <laughs> got posed. So we're starting to see the kind of fundamental problem in their relationship that they're going to have to overcome, which is that Salim is a super pious Muslim man, and the jinn is obviously not. It's so good that a god does not have faith. Like, I love it. Like, it really is presenting faith as, like, a choice and something that you can kind of do subjectively with effort. It's a really great portrayal of religion because this is a part of his identity and it's a part of his identity that the jinn doesn't like. But when you are romantically involved with somebody, if you're serious, then you're going to have to confront like every aspect of that, of your partner's identity. I loved that throughout the episode, they were actually like talking about meaningful stuff um, and kind of you know, like, working to identify and trying to to resolve their, like, difference in perspectives. Um, but my favorite part was was at the very end when basically, you know, like, they've been bickering about religion for the whole episode, and then they get to the end, and the jinn is just like, well, are you getting in my motorcycle, or, <laughs> like, or are you not? <laughs> I don't know. I Well, I feel like there's a, enough ambiguity in the scene to make it interesting, Salim kind of think is starting to think that the jinn doesn't want him. Mm. Whereas the jinn is like, we're still together. Like, just because we're having this fight doesn't mean we're not together anymore. You know, there are a lot of ways in which uh, real life relationships and fictional relationships are not <laughs> exactly the same. Um, but one thing that I think is true for both is that, like, what makes a good relationship is that you have to have both partners taking turns escalating the relationship. You can't just have it always be one side or one person pushing it mm. forward. Yeah, I thought this was this was really good because it kind of it showed that the the Jin was extending an invitation. You know, in his like brusque, quiet way, saying, like, no, I want you to come with me. And I thought that was really sweet. Speaking of uh, penetrating men, what about this whole spear thing? Um, Alvis? That's a transition, right? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Alvis. Alvis, who's in the book, um, when Shadow hears his name, he thinks that they're saying Elvis, and he's very confused. 
I loved this scene with Albus. It uh, it reminded me a lot of like modern Shakespeare adaptations. Ah, um, interesting. Right, because like there's there's clearly a contrast between the like very antiquated language, mm-hmm. um, and then the sort of like modern dress and and setting of the rest of the story. Alvis had like a very characteristic and like old fashioned way of speaking and Wednesday kind of slipped into the same cadence. She's seen better days, glorious days. She is indeed in need of restoration, but only by one whose crafting is worthy of Ivaldi's kin. I'm not one of the greatest craftsmen. I bested my own kin, Sindri, better known as Spark Sprayer to forge the hammer Molnir and the ring Drautmir. If there's forging to be done, I'm the one you seek. But it's the runes that require attention, Allfather. The runes that power your 18 charms. The runes that anoint the tip of your spear. This actor here, by the way, I recognized him immediately from uh, the television show Once Upon a Time, where he plays one of the seven dwarves. And I'm like, dude's getting typecast. Like, what's going on? <laughs> He's very tall for a dwarf. I don't know why they call him King of the Dwarves, because in mythology, he is not the King of the Dwarves. So probably a lot of people have heard of this guy um, called J.R.R. Tolkien. I don't know if you've uh, heard of him. How do you spell that? He wrote a book called The Hobbit. You might have heard of it. In that book, uh, there are two pretty famous scenes. One is like a riddle contest with a creature who lives under a mountain. And another one is um, where these trolls are going to eat the protagonist. Um, but he tricks them into uh, staying out until the sun comes up and then they turn into stone. Tolkien ripped this off from the Alvis story. Oh. So in the story that happens, Thor has a daughter. Said daughter is promised in marriage to the dwarf Alvis. And Thor thinks his daughter could do better. And so he goes to Alvis, who is named Alvis, because if um, if you think of the word wise and then change the W to a V, like wise, vise, mm-hmm. um, He's all wise. He's all this. He's all wise. He's a smarty pants, right? And what do smarty pants love to do? They love to fucking talk. He asks him, you're not worthy to marry my daughter unless you can answer me this riddle. Well, how about this riddle? How about this riddle? And it keeps going until the sun comes up and he turns into a statue because the sun turns dwarves into stone. But that's Alvis. Um, here he's he's very smart, right? But he's not smart enough to fix the spear. He doesn't know the runes. It's not about intelligence, Alan. It's about training. You're right. He doesn't have the technical expertise. Yeah, so this is kind of a dead end for um, Odin, right? He can't mm-hmm. get his mojo back. So before we move on, I just want to like take a second to talk about Wednesday's like casual homophobia wednesday's just like really fucking irritating sometimes and it's Mm -hmm. it's honestly like it's hard to tell if he's doing it on purpose to piss people off or if he honestly genuinely like doesn't know any better 
And I guess that's part of his con man shtick, right? Like, is he a loopy old man who doesn't know what he's doing and is bumbling around? Or is he, like, really cunning and trying to get under people's skin? Yeah. I like it as a character trait for him, but it also, like, a little bit is, like, pushing my buttons. It so clearly echoes a lot of the kind of sarcastic racism and homophobia where it's, like, people will make remarks and then um, if they're called out on it, we'll just be like, oh, it was just a joke or, like... Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I said something about like, you can't canoodle in my back seat. This is America. We wouldn't stand for that. Like, I'm making a commentary on other people's homophobia. Like, it's not my homophobia. I'm just making a commentary on everyone else's homophobia. But like, at its core, you also just didn't let them sit next to each other when that's what they wanted to do. And right. you like, <laughs> implied that like, you thought them getting their gay shit all over your car was gross. It irritates me, but then also I'm like, well, I'm probably supposed to be irritated, so maybe that's okay. Yeah, just real quick. I did want to say a few times in this episode, Shadow says Memento Mori. Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, Memento Moris were like um, a piece of art that you would keep in your house in medieval times to like remind yourself of mortality and to not just live in the drudgery of life. The art itself is part of the reminder. And in this case, like this story, this television show is a piece of art. And on a certain level, it is about not merely surviving in America, but like composing a dream for yourself and believing in yourself and believing in your dreams. And mm -hmm. so it's like directly speaking to the show. It's a little bit on the nose, but I liked it. So before we wrap up today, we wanted to share uh, two different podcast recommendations um, that related to the show in some way. Um, so the first one is an episode of a podcast called Gender Reveal that's hosted by Molly Woodstock. Um, and it's an episode where she interviews Jack Malstrom, who's the interim director of Portland Two-Spirit Society. And so um, Jack has a lot of really interesting things to say about the history of Two-Spirit in Native American culture and what um, being Two-Spirit means to her. Um, and so thank you so much to Kate, who's at I Do Human Things on Twitter, for uh, pointing us in the direction of that episode. It was a really great conversation. And so we're just going to play a short excerpt of that conversation um, just a, a minute or two um, so you can get a feel for that and then decide if you want to go find and listen to the rest of it. Two-spirit is a umbrella term that was created in the 90s to reclaim the spaces and the roles that queer people held in Native American cultures across this country and beyond. So for me, you know, Two-spirit is not only just like a in-between space, not necessarily in a binary way, but like you're able to really be able to empathize with the extreme masculine, extreme feminine and everything in between, but it's an important role. And so like in our communities, it's why people who are two spirit are seen as blessed to it's in some communities, it's you have a male and a female spirit and you're blessed to see through like the other dimension or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And it, two spirit means different things for everybody's culture. I'm still learning about what my roles would be for my tribe. I'm Pima and and uh, Yaki. And so I'm still learning what that would mean for my community and my specific culture. But overall, 
It expands across gender and sexual orientation. It's also a term that's that's specifically only for Native American people because of the cultural roles that are tied to it. So we were name givers, negotiators, ceremony holders, medicine people, all kinds of specific roles that were put on us and trained at a young age for that. And so if you're interested in listening to the rest of that, uh, you can look up Gender Reveal in the podcast app of your choice, or you can find at Gender Reveal on Twitter, um, and the host is at Molly Woodstock. And the second podcast we wanted to recommend was uh, a short bonus episode of the podcast, But Why Though, um, which is at But Why Though PC on Twitter. Um, that's hosted by Kate Sanchez, who's at Oh My Mithrin Deer on Twitter. And so Kate and a friend were um, out at a party at South by Southwest, and they happened to run into Musa Kraish and Omid Abtai. Um, the actors who play the Jin and Salim, respectively. Um, and so they had just like a really fun, kind of frivolous conversation. Um, it doesn't really touch on American Gods, the show per se. It's mostly about uh, geek culture more generally. Um, and you could listen to uh, this clip of Musa talking about why he would want to be long shot uh, if he got to be one of the X-Men. Should be fixed. But you know who I would play? And want to be? Long shot. Ooh. Really? That's a deep cut. Okay. Explain why. Explain the powers. I, I feel like you know who Longshot is. I know. I, I know. Name, I know who Longshot is. But I don't know a lot about him. Longshot's power. He's 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 an alien, but his power is luck. His power oh, is that's what? right. Luck. Yeah. He's just luck. It's a probability. Mean, so it's really weird. Some X Men have some weird things. So um, kind of. Some, have you have you seen Deadpool two? And he has three fingers, and the things he oh, could okay. do. You want to say we call Musa Mr. Longshot in the audition room? So. Oh. <laughs> It's very true. This is a raw podcast. It's very true. I come to set and it's like, oh, there's Mr. Longshot. I thought it was prob- probability mutation. So, like, it's kind of like Domino. Like, she, it's Yeah, her, it's her and Domino are from the same planet. Yeah. Got it. Yes. It's awesome. They're from the same planet. Um, but yeah. I haven't heard Longshot in a long time. He's, I don't even know what awesome. that looks like. Yeah. He, he, he has long blonde hair. He has three fingers. Two are really thick, so you can imagine what he is like. And he's always lucky. And so if you're interested in listening to all of that conversation, um, you can find the podcast. Uh, again, it's called But Why Though, uh, spelled T-H-O. And we'll also have links to both of those in the show notes. And I, I love uh, Kate's Twitter handle, uh, Kate Sanchez's Twitter handle, Oh My Mithrandir. Uh, Mithrandir is the name of a god, so it's oh my god. But also, Mithrandir is another name for Odin because uh, she's a big American Gods fan. Oh yeah, that's right. I can't believe I forgot to mention that. Um, so Kate also has an American Gods podcast called Oh My Wednesday. Um, so yep. if you are currently listening to us and not getting enough American Gods discussion in your life uh, on a weekly basis, definitely check them out. So we've reached the end. Uh, let's wrap up with lowlights and highlights. Uh, what was your least favorite part? Uh, I really missed a moment that happens in the book uh, with Alvis 
where that character in the book, his voice is so deep that it like rattles the windows in cars when he's humming. Um, and I wanted to see something like that. The, the actor just had like a normal voice, a normal build, which is fine, whatever. But it was like, oh man, I'm not going to get that super bass thing going on that happens in the book. So I was bummed out as, as soon as they said, we're going to see Alvis. I like grab my wife's hand and I'm like, oh, oh, it's going to rattle the, the car windows. But nope. What about you? So the thing that I think would have improved the episode most is just a little bit more clarity with regard to Shadow's storyline and William James. Uh, and then also with uh, Anansi's relationships with Shadow, Wednesday, and Ibis. Because I just... I felt like the Nancy we got in this episode was fun, but it wasn't super consistent with the Nancy we've gotten in past episodes. And again, that's that's mostly, I think, a complaint about the writing, because Orlando Jones is just always fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what was your favorite part? I, I loved all this stuff um, with Beryl Samadhi and uh, Mama Brigitte. Uh, it's so fantastic. And by the way, like speaking of Mr. Wednesday, uh, Samadhi is that means uh, Saturday in French. And so he's kind of Mr. Saturday to to his Mr. <laughs> to Wednesday. Mr. Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't um, too caricatured. It wasn't too like over the top, but it was still very weird and sinister and cool and powerful. It was just like. The performances were so good. The set design was so awesome. It was just perfect. Like, I couldn't have asked for it to be better. What about you? So, aside from uh, the addition of that coin mechanism for for Sweeney's luck and, and how it depends on how far away he is from Laura, I really liked sort of the final note for all of the different plot lines. I thought they all ended really strongly. Um, so there's that final scene between Salim and the Jinn where they're getting back in the motorcycle together. Um, then there's the final scene between Laura and Sweeney where, like, <laughs> they've had this intimate moment, but it wasn't super intentional. And now things are really awkward. And I think Laura just needs to escape because she really sees it as, like, you know, a threat to her mission and Sweeney like really doesn't want to see her go. I, my heart just goes out for both of them. And then Ibis kind of like <laughs> wrapping up this hazy, messy storyline with like a bow that kind of works enough. <laughs> and then like offering the beer with a nice line. Um, and it, you know, it does a good enough job of wrapping it up that you feel okay about it. Uh, and then, you know, there's like the world tree in the the foreground as the camera goes away, you know, promising again, like, you want to know what happens next. Like, clearly stuff is building, like, what's going to happen with this tree? So um, I thought it all it all kind of came together really well. And, and, and all of the storylines ended on really strong notes. I agree. It was really good episode. Before we move on here, I just wanted to plug... One of our uh, friends is doing a project. Um, you might remember in our first season, we told you about um, the Legion podcast Clockworks. 
Dr. Paul Moffat from that podcast is now teaching literature classes uh, about classic monster stories. And I took his Frankenstein class, which was the first one that he did, and it was so fabulous. Like, I really loved it. I learned a lot from the class. Uh, I really love Paul's teaching style. Um, He's going to be doing that class again pretty soon. And uh, he's also going to be doing a Dracula class, and there's still time to enroll in those. Uh, I'll link in the show notes to um, a video that he did analyzing the 1931 Frankenstein movie, and he talks a little bit about the book there, so you can get kind of a flavor for what the class was like. But I enjoyed it so much that I just really wanted to recommend it to everybody who listens to our show, um, because it was fantastic. Okay, so that's all we got for this episode. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Join us next week for Season 2, Episode 6, Donar the Great. And don't forget to tell all your friends about us and to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Because we are sustained by the tranquility of love and your reviews. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a creative commons non-commercial share alike license. Ha, 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 ha.